Go to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 32 this morning. As we look at what, uh, what it means to be a servant, what, what it means to be one who serves the way that Jesus taught us to serve, what we learned from his example. And, and in fact, this morning we'll come to what, what is actually the main verse, the, the primary verse. You might call it even the thesis statement in all of Mark's gospel. Over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus and his disciples getting closer and closer to Jerusalem and the arrest, the beating, the death that awaits Jesus there. We've also seen some of the most important teaching on discipleship that happens anywhere in any of the Gospels in chapters 9 and 10. We've seen the cost that is involved in following Jesus. We'll continue to see that this morning as, as we look at really the, the, the continued upside-down nature of what it means to follow after Jesus. You might remember at the end of last week's passage, Jesus declared, for many who are first will be last and the last first. And this morning, we're going to see that illustrated a little bit more. And sadly, we'll see the disciples uh, continuing to miss the point of what discipleship means. And so in that, I would say uh, it's sometimes it's easy for us, I think, to, to look at the disciples and see the way they miss the point on some stuff and to, to maybe roll our eyes or point and laugh. And yet, I think part of what we're supposed to see is our own tendency to miss the point in the example of, of the disciples as well. And we'll see Jesus's continued patience with them, certainly his, his correction, his instruction, but yes, his patience with them as they continue to grasp exactly who he is and why he was sent to the earth. So if you'll stand with me, let's read Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 this morning. The word of the Lord says this, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want to ask you, to, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the, baptized I, with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. 
Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage. One that so clearly tells us why Jesus came and then shows us the example that we are to follow. I pray you would open our eyes this morning to see the areas in our own lives where we have to, that we can practice being a servant. When our ego wants to creep in and say, well, wait a second, I deserve better than that, would you humble us? Would you call us back to a life of sacrifice and service? We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. So this morning, the question is, what does greatness in the kingdom of God look like? And how is that different than greatness in the world? Our big idea this morning is, is simply this. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in selfless service to others. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in selfless service to others. That's not Typically, how greatness is found in the world, and we'll see that contrasted a little bit as we go throughout this passage. Right off the bat, what we see is that Jesus sets the example for us when it comes to service. Jesus sets the example for what it means to, to serve others. We see this beginning in verse 32. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, this is significant because we have to keep in mind why they are on their way to Jerusalem and what's going to happen when they get there. Jesus has already told the disciples twice uh, since chapter 8 that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise on the third day. And yet he is in front of them, leading the way. The disciples, it says in verse 32, were astonished. And we don't know exactly what else has happened here, why they're astonished, other than uh, it could be because they are beginning to grasp what's going to happen. As I said, they, they've been a little slow to pick up what Jesus has told them plainly about what's going to happen when they arrive at Jerusalem. And so they, maybe they're astonished that Jesus is out front leading the way to Jerusalem. And yet at this point, we see that his face is set. His, he is fully committed to the plan that the Father has for him. And then we're told those who followed him were afraid. So we have here not just the 12 disciples, but others that were following him as well. And, and they're downright fearful, it says here, about what's going to happen. So Jesus takes the 12 aside and begins to tell them things that will happen to him. So see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. 
the next couple of weeks, we'll see them arrive in Jerusalem. At the beginning of chapter 11, we have the triumphal entry, which is at that point just a week away from the crucifixion. So they're going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus might actually mean that literally because the, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is around 20 miles or so and has an increase in altitude of about 3,000 feet. I think we might be able to grasp what that's like. If you've been up to Cloudcroft and a 4,000-foot elevation change and something like 17 miles, it's similar to what they're looking at here. Of course, they're on foot. So they're literally going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is leading the way for this last leg that will be a difficult, uh, a difficult walk, no doubt, because of the steep incline. No doubt a difficult walk because of what's waiting for him. And yet, we, we see him for the third time telling the disciples exactly what's going to happen when he gets there. He, he wants them to be prepared. He doesn't want them to be surprised. He knows exactly why he's going. And he sets this example of laying down his life. In fact, if we jump down to verse 45, which is, has been called the central verse, as I said at the beginning, kind of the thesis statement of the entire gospel of Mark, it's right here, Matthew 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is why Jesus came. Now, we can say, as, as, as I've said here, Jesus sets the example for us. But, but let's not stop there because it would be really easy just to simply say, see, Jesus is willing to, to lay down his life for others and, and we should be willing to lay down our lives for others as well, which is true. And yet that misses the whole point here because Jesus is laying his life down in a way that you and I can't. And in this moment in verse 45 to give his life as a ransom for many he's telling his disciples that he was sent to do this very thing to take the punishment that you and i deserved to live a perfect sinless life and to die a perfect sinless death so that you and i could be reconciled in fact this is how Isaiah described it 700 years, by the way, before Jesus was born. This is how he described what the coming Messiah would do. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> this is the reason Jesus was born. This is the thing that ties Christmas and Easter together. That Jesus was born to be the Messiah, to live the perfect sinless life, to die the death that we deserved. He came to take our place that we might be reconciled to God. Now we're going to see this contrasted with the way the world 
thinks. And uh, ironically enough, we're going to see the way the world thinks in the disciples. So as they're, even as they're walking with Jesus, they're still, not, uh, they, they're still wrestling with worldly thoughts and worldly ideas. And what we're going to see next is that the world desires sovereignty, not service. Look at me at verses 35 through 40. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. That's a dangerous question, isn't it? Ever, did, those of you who are parents, did you ever have a kid, one of your children come up to you and say, uh, don't say no, right? I'm going to ask you something, don't say no. I just want you to do whatever I'm going to ask. Jesus, of course, is smarter than they are, more wise than they are, so he he doesn't agree. He just says, what do you want me to do for you? And they answered him, allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Now, in light of what Jesus just told them about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, this seems, uh, certainly on the surface, it seems a bit shocking, right? Like, Jesus just explained to them that he's not going to Jerusalem to, to go kick Herod out and to take over the, the kingdom, but to be killed. And so there's a couple of things that, that might be happening here. One, uh, they just didn't hear what he just said. They, or they, they heard it, they didn't really hear it. If you know, if, and if you have children, you know what I mean by that, right? They heard it, but kind of went in one ear and out the other. They still have this idea that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, kick Herod out, and establish his earthly kingdom. And James and John are saying, Jesus, we want to be your power men. We want to be right there. One on your right hand, one on your left hand. It's even possible, and maybe even worse, that they're thinking on the other side of what he just told them. In other words, hey, uh, Jesus, you know, once, once that whole, you know, being arrested and, and being killed thing is over, you know, that's, that's, that's a bummer. Uh, that's going to be a little rough. But, but once we get on the other side of that, because you, know, you said you're going to rise three days later, so, so once you're on the other side of that, then can we be your power men? What we see here is they want the power. They don't want the suffering. They want... Jesus to establish his kingdom without laying down his life. And certainly they want no part of the suffering. They just want the power. They want the influence that would come with being the Messiah's right hand and left hand men. Maybe more embarrassing, Matthew actually adds that, that they didn't ask him themselves, but they had their mother go and ask him. Jesus asks them a really interesting question in verse 38. First of all, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? To which they simply respond, we are able. See, what Jesus is asking them here that, that I don't think they realize is, is there's only one way to this glory that you seek in the kingdom of God. There's only one way that that comes, and it's through sacrifice. It's through the laying down 
of your life? Are you able to do that? And again, I think without grasping what Jesus is saying, they respond, yes, absolutely. Because I think their mind is still on the glory. Yes, absolutely, I can, I can do that. Jesus tells them in verse 39, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus here gives James and John a promise that they will indeed suffer like he's going to suffer. And they do. In fact, James becomes the first Christian martyr of the disciples. The first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. John is actually the only disciple, history tells us, to not be martyred. But he suffers greatly being boiled in oil and surviving until he's finally exiled on the island of Patmos where he writes, receives, and, and records for us the revelation. So both of these men suffer greatly for the sake of Christ. And at that point, they no longer, as far as we can tell, desire this earthly glory, but they've come to know what it means to serve others and to know Christ Jesus deeply, perhaps because of their great suffering. And then Jesus has a teachable moment. And we learn, beginning in verse 41, that the life of a disciple is to be marked by sacrifice and service. Verse 41, the other ten disciples heard about James and John's request, and we're told that they are indignant with the two. Now this is, uh, as, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this is a, um, this is a rare word that's used in the Gospels. It's only used of Jesus once when the disciples were trying to keep children away from Jesus earlier in chapter 10. This is a special kind of anger. The disciples are just absolutely livid with James and John because they would dare ask, and it can come across like they're livid with them, they would dare ask to be at Jesus' right and left hand. I think knowing the, uh, knowing the attitude of the disciples, knowing their posture at this point, I think it's just as likely that they are livid with James and John because they asked Jesus first. In other words, we, we would have asked him, but you guys beat us to the punch, and now we're, we're angry, and so we'll feign this self-righteous indignation. How could you dare ask Jesus that? And Jesus, interestingly enough, instead of scolding them, calls them over and uses this as a teachable moment in verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. We just saw how the world responds. The world desires sovereignty, not service. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave for all. Jesus 
turns the expectations of disciples upside down. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not found in power. It's not found in influence. It's not found in money. It's found in service. It's found, and, and even that I feel like I need to qualify because we can feign service in order to gain influence. It's found in selfless service. Genuine laying down my own wants, my own desires in order that God may be glorified and others might be built up. Jesus contrasts the life of a disciple with the way the world responds. And here, for those who would follow Christ, there should be a noticeable difference. Now again, if we need to be clear here because there, there are some who will say, well then, followers of Christ should never have possessions. Followers of Christ should never have wealth. I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. I, I think he's saying that our priorities are different. And the things that we've been given, we've been given in order to bless others. It doesn't do us any good to hoard possessions for the sake of having stuff. If we've been blessed by God, we've been blessed in order to be a blessing to others, to serve and to further the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul would put it this way. He's reflecting on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and writing to the Philippians about how they're to respond. He says this, Philippians 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul takes this one verse out of Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he expounds on that for us and shows how we are to live in light of that as followers of Christ, as those who have been set free from the power of sin and death. We're free now to walk not as slaves to sin, not under an oppressive law, but we're free to walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in humility. Because we would be reminded that salvation is a gift. It's nothing that we earned. Paul, Paul says that in Ephesians 2. We're, it's not, nothing that we earned. It's been given to us. Can you imagine someone becoming conceited because of a gift? Makes no sense, right? 
So Paul would say, as those who've been set free from the law of sin and death, we therefore should adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who, notice here he says, existing in the form of God. So even though Jesus Christ was God himself, God in the flesh, he didn't, Paul writes, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, and therefore we are to empty ourselves. And humbling himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're to humble ourselves to the point of following Christ Jesus and his example, laying down our lives that he might take them and use them in the way that he would want to. So this morning, for those of us who are followers of Christ, let me remind you of our big idea today. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in selfless service to others. If you want to be great, become a servant. In so doing, we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ because selfless service Christ-centered selfless service requires that we lay down our own wants and desires because do you, do you know what I've learned as, as I've lived a little bit and I don't think this is going to get easier as I get older. Being selfless is hard. Cr- crucifying my, my own wants and desires is difficult. Do you know why? Because I'm selfish. Because sometimes that's uncomfortable. I don't like to be uncomfortable. And yet Christ Jesus has called us to lay our lives down for the sake of others. So if you're, you're here and you're a follower of Christ, my prayer for us this week is that we would all be given the opportunity, blessed with the opportunity to, to be selfless in some way this week. to practice selfless service. If you're in the room, if you're watching us online, and you're not yet a follower of Christ, consider what Jesus said in verse 45, that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to lay his life down for you, to pay for your sins, those things that have separated you from God, that you might be reconciled to God and experience eternal life in Him. So if you're watching this or if you're in the room today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can do that right now by praying something like this. God, I'm a sinner and I want to be forgiven. I believe Jesus Christ, your Son, died for my sins and is alive right now. I turn away from my sin and now confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and receive Him into my life. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to control my life, and I thank you for giving me eternal life. And if you've prayed that prayer this morning, we want to know about it. You can text us the, the number that's there on the screen. I'd love to get in touch with you this week and let you know how, uh, what it looks like to follow him and, and how to take the next steps. I pray all of us would consider the example of Jesus Christ. 
and lay our lives down in the same manner that he laid his life down for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to gather together, even on a cold morning. I thank you for, for bringing us here safely in the room. For those who are watching us online, I pray you would bless them as well and you would call us all to this selfless service. That we would consider the example of Jesus. Maybe there's someone watching us today that has never laid their life down and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And today would be the day that you open their eyes to the fact that Christ died in their place. Today would be the day they would repent of sins and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. For those of us who are followers of Christ, I pray, as difficult as it might be, you would give us opportunities to practice the selfless service, to lay our lives down. And that as we do so, it might give us the opportunity to point someone to Jesus who laid his life down for us. May we not follow the example of James and John in this passage, jockeying for position and constantly thinking about how we can gain power and influence, but we'd be concerned with displaying the humility that Christ called us to have and that Paul told us about in Philippians 2. As people who bear the name of Christ Jesus, may our lives reflect who you are, what you've done for us. Let's call these things in Jesus' name. Amen.